When it comes to the sinful desires that we all struggle with, I believe that the Apostle John summed up this struggle best in 1 John chapter 2. It's there where he lists the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Simply put, you know, every single sin that we struggle with really just stems from these three things. All of our sins stem from the lusts that lead us into a life of immorality and the pride, the pride that stops sinners from repenting of their wicked ways. Not only that, but listen, it's the foolishness of pride that keeps people from receiving the grace of God. And the reason why? Well, it's because God resists those who are filled with pride. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That being the case, you know, it's shocking to see how many people in the world today have convinced, they've been convinced into believing that celebrating pride is a good thing. The clearest example of this, well, it can be seen in the pride parades that occur every year during the month of June. You might not know this, but it was actually back in 1999 when President Bill Clinton first declared June to be Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. Then in 2016, President Barack Obama proclaimed June to be LGBT Pride Month. And and not to be outdone, of course, Biden He recently expanded the observance to include, and I quote him here, uh, the LGBTQLI, excuse me, plus. Now, to be fair to Biden, you know, I think what he meant to say was LGBTQIA plus. But hey, let's be honest, who can keep up with this at this point in time? As we continue to add letters on, you know, it's just getting harder and harder to keep up with it all. But just, just to be clear about this, it'll help you to know that LGBTQIA plus actually stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual. That's right. They're, uh, they're those who are asexual, meaning not interested in sex at all. They get to be part of the club too. And, and then there's the plus, right? There's the, there's the plus, which appears to be a placeholder for whatever's going to be added next. At this point in time, the plus appears to include those who think that they have two two spirits, which is why people are starting to include the the number two with S uh, before plus. And it's my guess that the plus will eventually include pedophiles, as well as necrophiles, and even those who, even at this point in history, are still engaging in bestiality. Yeah, uh, the plus will eventually encompass everyone, uh, well, except for cisgender heterosexuals. Now, as we consider how Clinton, Obama, and Biden officially encouraged every American to set aside this month of June so that we can celebrate the pride of those who belong to this LGBTQIA plus community, well, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that parents are now taking their children out to Pride in the Park events and Pride parades where little kids are being introduced to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. One example just occurred this past Sunday when the Boy Scouts of America, rather than being taken to church, uh, they were taken to a pride parade there in Seattle, Washington. 
And the Boy Scouts were sent to march at the very beginning of this pride parade with rainbow flags in hand. They were followed by a group of nude cyclists who were there to celebrate their pride. Not only that, but the sidewalks were also filled with onlookers of all ages as the pride of people, you know, introduced you know, this, this, this parade, you know, uh, was presenting children with, with the carnal concepts of kink, as well as the sexual fixation of fetishes. Yeah, kids were just watching all this as it went by. And no surprise, because pride parades have always been uh, about sexual preferences. That's what pride parades are about. If you're taking your children to a pride parade, you have to know this is about people celebrating their sexual preferences. What do you think you're going to see? And you better believe that this same scene, these pride parades where little kids are watching all of this pass on by, this is happening in every major city throughout America throughout the month of June. Now, with that being the case, I want to spend some time considering the current course of our country by asking, you know, is this popular push towards pride, is it pleasing in the eyes of the Lord? Or or is this the sort of pride that will lead our nation down the path of destruction? Well, with these questions in mind, I want to begin by addressing those who will inevitably accuse me of spreading homophobic hate speech. Uh, let me just first assure you that I harbor no hatred in my heart towards those who belong to the LGBTQIA plus community. I'm not speaking from a place of hate. It's actually my desire that everyone would repent and turn to Jesus Christ. At the same time, though, I do take issue with the agenda that's currently taking place as the LGBTQIA plus activists have admitted that their goal is to corrupt our kids. You might not know this, but there are those within the community in question who have confessed that their agenda is to corrupt our kids. For example, it was just last July when uh, the San Francisco Gay Man's Chorus, so much redundancy in this, but the San Francisco Gay Man's Chorus released a musical video which was uh, titled, A Message... From the gay community. Okay, well, what is this message? What are they communicating? Well, let's consider the lyrics of this song titled A Message, a message from the Gay Community. The, the, the lyrics include the following confession. They sing, you're just frightened. You think that will corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. Funny, just this once, you're correct. That's right, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus has already informed us that their agenda is to corrupt our kids. I didn't choose the word corrupt. They did. They could have said, we're going to influence your kids, we're going to you know, entertain your kids. They could have said anything, but they said that their agenda is to corrupt our kids. Is it true that they then recognize that this is corruption? The same song continues in this way, and I quote them, We'll convert your children, happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. Now just think about that for a moment. These activists who are themselves opposed to conversion therapy 
are proudly admitting now that they're attempting conversion therapy in their own way by attempting to convert our kids. And so much for the belief that people are just born this way. Why do they think that someone could be converted to this if they also believe that you're just born this way? Sadly, we see this agenda being promoted almost everywhere now. Whether you go to a store like Target or you go to the mall and to the Apple store or whether you, uh, you know, are on streaming services like Netflix or Paramount or you see this agenda, it's in your face. Not only that, but this agenda has been on trend at Disney for many years now. For example, it was actually back in 2018 when the Disney Channel used their coming-of-age series titled Andy Mac. They used this as a vehicle for introducing the channel's first depiction of a coming-out-of-the-closet story. More recently, Disney has uh, introduced a lesbian kiss in their latest movie, Lightyear. And these are just a few examples of the way that Disney executives are, are advancing this agenda by presenting preteen kids with the concept of same-sex attraction. We also know that this agenda is being promoted within public schools. As a matter of fact, there are many teachers today in the public school system who are now using the classroom to indoctrinate our kids. For example, uh, you might not know this, but some teachers are actually using what is known as a gender unicorn worksheet which was created by trans student educational resources. And why they chose a unicorn, we know. You know, unicorns. Yeah, just to be clear, the gender unicorn worksheet encourages the kids in the classroom to choose their gender identity, their gender expression, as well as their biological sex. These are three options for these kids to choose from. The teachers who are using this gender unicorn worksheet are leading their kids to believe that there's you know, some sort of difference between their gender identity and their gender expression and their biological sex. I must ask, you know, is this the case? Is, is there some new scientific evidence that would lead us to, to realize that, oh, this is a real thing? Is there a difference between gender and biological sex? With this question in mind, I would draw your attention to the etymology of the word gender. Uh, you see, the word gender actually stems from the Latin word genus. And the Latin word genus uh, was not only used of uh, the, the genus of a species, but also the specific sex, namely the, the male or the female within the genus. And, and in this sense, we find a clear connection between the Latin word genus and our English words Gender, genetics, and genitals. These all stem from this word genus. In order to grasp the etymological connection of all these words, I want to consider a statement that Christopher West presented when he wrote this, and I quote, We determine our gender by asking with what genre of genitals we generate. In other words, Think about it like this. The genitals by which we generate the next generation uh, also determines the genre of our gender. Or, or more simply put, our gender is determined by our genitals. Now this should be simple enough for anyone to understand, and yet the public schools are full of teachers who are leading our kids to think that the physical genitalia that they were born with isn't the basis for identifying their gender. Gender. 
And as they attempt to identify those who might suffer from what is called gender dysphoria, where, you know, what you think you are doesn't really line up with the, the plumbing that you have. Well, the next step for these teachers is, is to encourage the use of puberty blockers followed by cross sex hormones, and finally, the so-called sex reassignment surgery, as if you can reassign someone's sex. Now, please understand that all of this is being pushed by educators as well as primary care providers. I just uh, heard uh, one friend of mine talking about how uh, the, uh, the wife and the daughter went to their primary care provider and uh, and, and the 13-year-old girl uh, who was being checked out, well, the, the, the physician told the mother that she needed to step out of the room so that they could have a private conversation with this 13-year-old girl. I would get up and leave with my daughter. No. No, you don't get to push your agenda on my child while I'm gone. Time to find another physician. And yet this is happening. And listen, this is being pushed by educators and, and physicians and, and, and psychiatrists, all in the name of mental health. And, and this despite the fact that you know, recently re, uh, released research has, has now revealed that the suicide rate is on the rise in the states where minors have access to hormones and puberty blockers without parental consent, because that is happening. There are places where minors can get a hold of hormones and puberty blockers without their parents' consent. And yet in those states, the suicide rate among, uh, among these kids is rising. As a matter of fact, the lead researcher, J.P. Green, he summed up this study by declaring... Starting in 2010, when puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones became widely available, elevated suicide rates in states where minors can more easily access those medical interventions became observable. The suicide rate increased in an, an, an observable way after these puberty blockers became more accessible. And these suicide rates among minors have continued to increase in these states where puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones have become more uh, widely available. And, and yet this research will be quickly dismissed by those who are pushing the pride agenda. They say it's about mental health, and yet the science doesn't bear that out. Sadly, this pride agenda is not only being promoted in the public schools, but listen, uh, we find the same agenda being promoted from the stages and the social media accounts of many churches. For example, it wasn't too long ago when a small choir from St. Paul's Anglican Church in Canada, they posted a woke rendition of the classic hymn, Be Thou My Vision, which is one of my favorite hymns. Why they call it a him and not a her, I don't know, but that's not, uh, that's not for me to figure out right now. But they've retitled this song, God of Many Faces. And within the lyrics of this woke rendition of Be Thou My Vision, we find the Lord being referred to as the God of many faces, the God of many bodies, and the God of many genders. The God of many genders. I'm curious. Uh, what is the biblical basis for believing that our creator is a God of many genders? 
We'll have to look further into that. But another example of this can be found in a prayer that was recently presented at the First Presbyterian Church in Iowa City, Iowa. And it was the director of Christian education. Get that for a moment. This this is the director of Christian education at this church who introduced this invocation by praying, O God of pronouns, we give praise to the great one, the one who was identifiable as God. Okay. So this prayer is being prayed uh, to the God of pronouns. And, 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 and you know, okay, uh, you know, I, I'm, I believe that God created language and therefore created pronouns, but I'm not so sure that's what they mean. The, the God of the Bible never introduced himself as the God of pronouns. And so I have a sneaking suspicion that this is a God that's another God altogether. This sounds like a false God. To make my case, let's consider another line from this scripted prayer where an appeal was made to, and I quote here, the great they, the incarnate he and she, the God of trans being. Okay, so the director of Christian education at the First Presbyterian Church there in Iowa City, Iowa, is praying to a God who is a trans being. Not only that, but then she also calls upon her God in this way, and I quote, breastfeeding God of many breasts. You shatter all stereotypes, making every single person male and female, intersex, non-binary in your image. All right, well, here we find the the basis for her belief, that God is some sort of trans being of many pronouns and genders. The the director of Christian education at this church is, is forcing the pride agenda into this invocation according to a faulty interpretation of Genesis 1 because that's where we find uh, the, uh, the true God speaking of uh, creating people in his image. Remember, it's in Genesis chapter 1 where Moses tells us that God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I realize that math is not my best subject here, but as far as I can tell from this, there are a total of two genders, that being male and female. Where then does it say in the Bible that God created more than two genders? Where is that verse? Well, the answer is nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever reveal himself as a she or a trans being of many pronouns. And while it's true that God created humans, male and female, according to his image, we must not forget that God is not a man. This is not to suggest that if we, you know, look up into heaven and, and, and we finally see God, that we'll see someone that looks just like us. God is invisible. Because he's immaterial and infinite. It would be incorrect for us to conclude that God must somehow be some sort of trans being because he created both male and female. Now let me just say this, that that if God revealed himself as a non-binary trans being, well, well then I would gladly worship our creator according to the truth of the revelation that we've received. I don't know better than God. I'm not here to try to define God and and tell you that I'm making God in my image. If God said, I'm a trans being, I wouldn't say, no, you've got to be cisgender because that's the only right way. And that would be silly. 
If God revealed himself as a God of pronouns and a trans being, well, I would worship that God. I'll gladly worship our creator according to the truth of the revelation that he has revealed. And yet as we search the scriptures, we clearly see that our creator either refers to himself in the masculine, or there are times he also uses common or genderless terms like ia, which is rendered I am. That being the case, there's no biblical basis for referring to God as a female deity with many breasts. Nor is there a biblical basis for believing that he's a trans being who created people to become non-binary beings according to who he is. No. God created humans to be male and female, and there's no biblical basis for rejecting the gender binary that our Heavenly Father designed. Sadly, though, there's no shortage of teachers in the church today who are presenting the pride agenda and even from the pulpit. Yeah, there are those who are using publishers and social media platforms and pulpits as they encourage the church to deconstruct the scriptures according to the pride agenda. And with that being the case, I want to consider some of the arguments of those who insist that the God of the Bible has no problem celebrating pride. For example, there's a Lutheran pastorix named Megan Rohrer, who assures her audience that Daniel's friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wore fancy robes because they were transgender guys. That's what she says. Never mind the fact that there's no biblical basis for presenting this point of view. Where does she get this? She makes it up. It's a whole cloth fabrication. Another example of this surfaced back in 2019 when Jade Sylvan produced a video sermon which was all about Joseph and his colorful robe, which she insists was a rainbow-colored princess dress. That's what she thinks. Jade Sylvan wants us to believe that Joseph wore a rainbow-colored princess dress because, according to her, he was a gender nonconformist who was attacked by his cisgender brothers. This, again, is clearly a whole cloth fabrication, which is based on faulty hermeneutics. And yet this sermon actually won the Billings Preaching Prize at Harvard Divinity School. Yeah. This is an award-winning sermon. I guess the leaders at Harvard Divinity School forgot all about the law that Moses recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 22, where the Lord forbids men from dressing up like women. Look, guys, I don't care how pretty you think you are. God doesn't want you dressing like a woman. How about Brandon Robertson, the self-described gay pastor? I didn't call him that. He calls himself that. He's the gay pastor who proudly opposes the traditional biblical position of sexual purity. Robertson recently posted a short sermonette on Twitter. Uh, It's centered around the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb. And, uh, you know, this so-called gay pastor... uh, you know, wants us to believe that when Jesus called Lazarus to come forth from the tomb, he was actually encouraging Lazarus to come out of the closet. That Jesus didn't really raise him from the dead. No, no, no. He was just encouraging Lazarus to to come forth and be fancy. And yet in the scriptures, he literally calls Lazarus to come forth from a tomb. 
The apostle John confirms this interpretation. It's in John chapter 12, where we learn that many of the Jews knew Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. John also tells us that the religious leaders plotted to put Lazarus to death again. And and the reason why is because of the miracle and not because he was out of the closet and in the streets. So again, this is just a fabrication made up in the mind of a person who's pushing the pride agenda. Listen, if, if the scriptures informed us that Jesus told Lazarus to come out you know, and be gay, how, I wouldn't know better. I, I wouldn't know how to force a different interpretation upon that and force my will onto the Bible. But that's exactly what these people are doing. They're taking their will, their beliefs, and they're, they're shoehorning it into the scriptures. And it's not the right way to engage in biblical interpretation. These teachers are clearly twisting the scriptures according to a pride agenda. And that being the case, I want to spend a few more minutes considering some of the arguments that are leading many, even in the church, astray. But before we do, I just want to point out that I don't know better than God. If the word of God encourages the acceptance of the LGBTQIA plus pride agenda, that's what I'm willing to do. If God's word places the pride, uh, this sort of pride in the category of sexual sin, well then that's where we should place it as well. We should accept the word of God as is. We, we should just believe what God has revealed and humble ourselves and say, we don't know better than God. He's the creator. He's given us life. He's got his plan, and he's revealed it to us in the Bible. Why would we try to mess with that? God knows best. With this as the focus, I want to consider the arguments of those who insist that the Old Testament's condemnation of homosexuality was never applied here in the church age. Now, I can appreciate this argument. It's actually a very technical argument that uh, I've used on several occasions as it applies to other things. There are many rules and regulations that we find in the Old Testament law that no longer apply to the church age, like, uh, let's say, the Levitical dietary restrictions. Those no longer apply to Christians in the church age. The Sabbatarian requirements, the feasts and festivals, these, are, these no longer uh, apply in the church age. They're, they're no longer laws that we must follow. And, and so when, when these who are promoting the pride agenda come along and say, well, you know, okay, so there's, there's, a, there's a few things in the Old Testament law about homosexuality and it condemns it, sure, okay. But it's never repeated in the New Testament, therefore it no longer applies. Okay, um, let's see. That would be a valid argument if we find nothing in the New Testament, specifically the epistles, regarding uh, this this pride movement. So then, is there anything in the New Testament epistles that would help us to determine the difference between sexual immorality and purity during the church age? Well, with this question in mind, I'd like you to uh, consider the point that Paul was making in his letter to the church in Rome. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to point out that, you know, there in first century Rome, sex was actually a form of physical domination. 
with that being the case, it's important to understand that it was socially acceptable there in first century Rome for freeborn Romans to have sex with women or men so long as they were assuming a dominant role. Women and young men were both natural objects of desire to Roman men. Not only that, but a Roman man was also free to have sex with slaves and prostitutes, regardless of the gender. Furthermore, an emperor named Octavian Augustus, he introduced a legionary's marriage ban, which was actually enforced for almost two centuries. And it was during that time, which includes the first century, when Roman soldiers, they weren't allowed to get married, but they were allowed to engage in sexual relations with prostitutes, with slaves, and prisoners of both sexes. So this is the historic context when Paul is writing this letter to the Christians and the church there in Rome. And and if you would look with me at Romans chapter 1, I want to begin reading there at verse 24, because here Paul declares, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness and sexual immorality. Now, I want to stop right there because it's here in these verses where we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Rome to realize that the shameful sexual relations that were occurring there in Rome uh, were actually based on what Paul calls vile passions that he categorized as unnatural and debased. And he sums it up with those words, sexual immorality. Notice again there in verse 26, here here Paul again tells us that God gave them up to vile passions. That's what he calls them, vile passions. He tells us that even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is, notice, shameful. Paul says it's shameful. From this, we can see that the Old Testament prohibitions on sexual immorality, they have, in fact, been reiterated here in the New Testament epistles. Because this is exactly the same as as the prohibitions that we find in the Old Testament. In response to this, there are those who will insist that, you know, Paul was only referring to the pedophilic relations which were common among the Romans, right? And and it's true. It's true that Roman men were known for their pedophilia. And so we should take a moment to ask, uh, was Paul limiting these vile passions to the pedophilic practices, which were in fact socially acceptable there in Rome? Well, the simple answer is no. Paul Paul was referring to any same-sex relationship, no matter the age. To prove my point, let's look again here at the beginning of verse 27. Here again, Paul writes, Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. Now, as we take a closer look at this 
verse, I want to consider the original language. And, and as we look at the Greek, we find Paul using one Greek word in all three cases of the, the use of the, the word man or men. Three times he uses the same Greek word translated men. Now it's possible that the original Greek word could be rendered young male. And yet we must not fail to notice the Greek words that are here rendered one another. He says that they were burning in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. Now there's a reason for why the translators didn't render one of those words, men, to young boy or young man. The reason why is because of those words, one another. That phrase, one another, actually means mutual or of the same kind. And what this means is that Paul is referring to men with other men who are of the same kind. So he's not talking about men with boys, but he's talking about men with men. Now, this doesn't completely rule out pedophilia, and yet it's most certainly not limited to men with children. To that, there are those who will insist that Paul wasn't condemning same-sex marriage. Okay, so, so, so he's, he's talking about men with men, but he, he's, he's, not, he's not condemning same-sex marriage, they would say, but instead he's just speaking out against the lust that results in premarital relationships between same-sex couples. Notice again, here in verse 27, Paul declares, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the wind, women burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. Now, as we take another look at this verse here, Paul here seems to be taking an issue with the burning lust that was leading men to engage in premarital sex with other men that they weren't married to. And according to those who use this argument, the solution for this lust, well, it's same-sex marriage. Thanks, Obama. Yeah, that's what they think. Lust is what Paul is dealing with here. However, this is really nothing more than cherry-picking the text. To prove my point, let's back up and begin reading once again. There at verse 26, Paul tells us that God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, or in the same way, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. Here in these verses, we find Paul referring to those who were ex- exchanging uh, the natural use of the sexual relationship between uh, both genders, man with woman, woman with man. He's saying that, that they're giving up the natural use for a form of intercourse which is against nature. This is something that is against nature. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render verse 27 like this. The men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other, men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of the sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Clearly, Paul was, wasn't merely concerned about the lustful sin of premarital homosexuality. Instead, he's actually informing us that same-sex relations, it's actually in conflict with nature. Set aside God just for a moment and just realize this is not natural. 
that being the case, we should take a moment to address the arguments of those who insist that you know, the sexual preferences of those who belong to the LGBTQIA plus community, it must be okay because, well, you know, God made us that way. That's, that's the way uh, they would argue it, that, that God made us this way. And so who are we to deny God's design? Now, when it comes to this argument, the first thing that I would point out is that there's no such thing, scientifically speaking, as gay genes, unless you're talking about Jordash, and that's another issue altogether. <laughs> that might be dating me a little bit, but... Uh... There's no science that would lead us to think that genetics are to blame for a person's sexual preferences. You know, this was a big argument. I think it was back in the late 90s, or early O's, you know, when they were saying, oh, we, they, they found, you know, gay genes, and so therefore uh, it's genetics. But then there were no scientists who could reproduce the same results and come to find out that the original scientist was himself a homosexual, so it was already skewed. But recently, back in 2019, there was the most comprehensive study on this topic and was published in Science. And according to the research, there, there's no evidence of a single gay gene. They couldn't find you know, a, a gay gene that, that is driving people uh, to be homosexual. Not only that, but there are also many uncertainties that remain to be explored, including how sociocultural influences on sexual preference might interact with genetic influences. And with that being the case, you know, those who insist that they were born with these desires, they don't have the support of science. So you can't make a science, you, you cannot make a scientific argument that people are born with, with these sexual preferences. At the same time, though, I would also point out that, you know, in, in another sense, spiritually speaking, we're all born with a sin nature. Every single one of us. We're all born with a sin nature. We're all born under the curse of Adam's sin. And, you know, that, that sin nature can manifest in, in a lot of different ways. With that being the case, we're all prone to pursuing the sinful pleasures, which could be categorized as the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So just because a person desires a specific type of sexual sin doesn't mean that this is actually God's will for their life because they desire it. Having a desire for something doesn't mean that desire came from God. It probably came from your fallen nature. Case in point, you know the Bible tells us that premarital sex is sin. Premarital sex is sin. That's what the Bible says. The single who has sex with anyone is simultaneously committing sexual immorality. And furthermore, God says, you know, if you lust in your heart after a woman, then you're effectively guilty of fornication. The single who engages in the sexual immorality of premarital fornication they can't justify their sin by insisting, well, it's God's fault, you know. He, he gave me this desire, so clearly he wants me to act upon it, right? Wrong. The fact is that God is calling every single to abstain from sexual immorality. In similar fashion, the Bible also tells us that adultery is sin. 
Therefore, the married person who has sex with someone other than their spouse, well, they're simultaneously committing the sin of sexual immorality. And listen, the spouse who engages in the sin of sexual immorality through adultery, well, they can't simply justify their sin by insisting, well, it's God's fault. You know, he, he's the one who gave me this lustful appetite, and so he must want me to pursue other people. Nope. Biblically speaking, God expects every married person to honor their vows by abstaining from the sin of adultery. Finally, I would point out that the God of the Bible has actually defined marriage. Thus, we start thinking that, well, as long as, you know, a same-sex couple is married, then it must be okay, right? No. Not biblically speaking. God has defined marriage as a covenantal relationship between one biological man and one biological woman. We find this in Genesis chapter 2. Here the creator of marriage declares, a man shall leave his father and mother because that's how it works. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And then we learn in Genesis, speaking of Adam and Eve, that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Or in other words, there was nothing shameful about their sexual relationship because this was all according to God's design. One biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship, should have no shame in their sexual relationship. Lord, Lord Jesus later confirms this in Matthew chapter 19. There he declares, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Here we find Christ Jesus confirming the fact that marriage was designed by God to be a lifelong covenant between a biological man and a biological woman. And while the sexual relationship within this context is pure and undefiled in the eyes of God, everything else belongs to the category of sexual immorality. Any sort of sexual activity outside of one biological man and one biological woman who are married, anything beyond that is sexual immorality. And God is not going to accept, well, you gave me these desires, so obviously you wanted me to act upon it. No. God has given us his rules and regulations for the sexual relationship. And it's confined to the parameters of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. To sum it up with simplicity, the biblical parameters of sexual purity, it's confined to the marriage bed when one biological man and one biological woman make a commitment to God to become one flesh according to the covenant that they make with him. And while it's true that the God of the Bible is encouraging every person to then abstain from every form of sexual immorality, listen, it's also true that most of us have already fallen short of God's perfect purity. Most of us have fallen short of this standard. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that God will forgive those who will simply repent of sexual immorality. Isn't that good news? That no matter how guilty we are when it comes to sexual immorality, God is ready to forgive the repentant. I like the way that Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's there where he asks, 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there at the church in Corinth to understand that those who are filled with pride as they celebrate their sexual immorality, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, if they will not repent of their sins, if they continue to celebrate with pride, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Conversely and thankfully, those who will repent will be washed and cleansed from the stain of their sexual sin as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and justifies those who will simply trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this is not to suggest that our carnal cravings will simply disappear. And that's why it's so, care- it's so important, you know, especially for those who are younger, be careful what you put your eyes on. Be careful what websites you click on. Be careful with what movies you watch. Because once you start entertaining the ideas of some of these sexual sins, there's some bells that can't be unrung. And there are some desires that, that adults fight for the rest of their life simply because they went down a path and realized it's wrong. And yeah, you can repent and back up and get back on the straight and narrow, but there's still a, a, a carnal craving that exists that must be fought against for the rest of your life. So I wouldn't go exploring too, too deep into the internet, that's for sure. I'd be careful about the movies that you watch. And it's sad to say that there are many movies that are aimed at kids now that are introducing the, these ideas into their heads. So parents, you need to be careful. You ought to go check out what that movie is that Disney just produced because it might just be filled with garbage that will cause your kids to start stumbling. Thankfully, those who will repent of foolish pride by submitting to the will of our Savior, though we might struggle with carnal cravings for the rest of our lives, the Lord will give us the spiritual strength that we need so that we can flee from sexual immorality. With this as the goal, I'm going to consider the encouragement that Paul went on to present here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's beginning at verse 18 where Paul declares, flee sexual immorality. He doesn't say, go to the parade. Nope. He doesn't say, go watch the movie. Go entertain these ideas on the internet. Nope. Flee sexual immorality. Why? Paul says, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body 
and in your spirit, which are God's. If you've placed your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he has purchased you with his blood. You belong to him now. Let him call the shots in your life. And rather than rushing down to the pride parade and rather than pursuing the pleasure of sexual sin, Paul encourages us to simply flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Regardless of the sort of sexual immorality that we're talking about, I encourage you to remember that those who engage in sexual immorality are actually sinning against themselves. And the Lord would spare us of this. Thankfully, those who trust in Jesus Christ have also received the power of the Holy Spirit and those who walk in the power of the Holy Spirit shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Therefore, if you're struggling and looking for the spiritual strength that you need to walk in the purity of the Lord, then I encourage you, humble yourself and walk by faith with Jesus Christ so that we can receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will help us to replace our pride with purity. Let's pray.